our breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and the Boon people of the Kulin Nation. We'd like to pay respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. Good morning. Well, good morning, morning, everyone. Welcome to Wednesday Breakfast. It is the 31st of July, mm-hmm. a very chilly morning. It's three degrees this morning, so mm. make sure you get your layers on. <laughs> um, but welcome to Wednesday Breakfast, and we have some new faces. We've got some new voices, show. yeah. So yeah. we've got Rob um, bringing us in on the panel this morning. Hello. Good morning, Rob. And we've got a new face. Uh, Jess, would you like to introduce yourself a bit? Hello. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Jess. I'm very new to 3CR. <laughs> I'm very excited, though. Um, and you'll be kind of joining our Wednesday breakfast team. Yes, I will. Hopefully, you'll hear me quite a bit every mm. Wednesday. Mm-hmm. So Jess has been just so for all of you those who don't know, the way it kind of works is you you sign up, you volunteer, you do your your nine weeks training. Nine weeks. Eight weeks. Eight, Eight weeks, weeks training. Yeah, two months. And then you kind of sit in the studio watching the show go on a few times. Gawking and gawking. Building your confidence up to (laughs) jump on air. To actually get on mic, yeah. Uh, So Jess has kind of been in this process of watching us in the background and now she's Mm -hmm. finally... Here. Yes, I'm yeah. here. Hopefully you are happy with what I have to bring. So <laughs> <laughs> all we can wish for, but uh No, no, yeah. just, like uh could you give us kind of an outline of kind of what are your interests? Why why yeah. join three C R? So um I'm currently at university. I'm studying journalism actually, but I've also studied Middle East studies. I'm really, really passionate about um Middle Eastern affairs and especially what is brought to the media about them. Um, I'm not happy about <laughs> what's uh, being perceived in the media at the moment about mm-hmm. the Middle East region for a number of reasons, as I'll bring to you e- each week. Uh, each week, week. Yeah. maybe. Yeah, maybe we look forward to um, kind of a little little segment. Yeah. <laughs> and so what brings you to 3CR, Jess? Well, actually, I was recommended to come here by a friend. Um, she uh, did do Thursday breakfasts, and um, sh- I told her, like, I was really keen on, you know, getting my, you know, voice out there to sort of educate the people on things that they, you know, may not know. And um, she says, 3CR is perfect for it, you know. Like, we've got a voice here. People listen. Um, the community vibes, yeah. obviously. Yeah, <laughs> um, so, yeah, I was really keen to jump on board. Yeah. And uh, I have to ask the first time kind of getting here, how was, yeah. how was getting here this morning? Oh, well, actually, it was my first time driving to Fitzroy. Ooh. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> um, I live quite far away, so yeah. it was a little bit daunting. But, um, yeah, no, it was great. Great. Check on the tunes. Yeah, I was, had some bangers on. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no worries. Better than on PTV, unfortunately. Is that how you got here this morning? Or? Uh, that's how yeah. I got yeah. here. Yeah. That was yeah. that sword, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> no, no problem. Um, I have to say, special shout out to Thursday Breakfast. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, thanks to Herazard. <laughs> Same for me as like Tuesday Breakfast. So I feel like mm. a lot of people sort of hear from, have friends from other yeah. different breakfast studios and get involved. Yeah. But equally, if you don't have a friend, you can still get involved. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. 
training yeah. sessions running throughout the year. So if you're keen, definitely jump on board because it's a great, great program. Get on down. Mm-hmm. And while we're kind of talking about things 3CR, I'd just like to remind people um, about the Radiothon. We have kind of stopped talking about this. Um, so the Radiothon is our annual fundraiser, for those who don't know. Um, Wednesday Breakfast actually got pretty darn close to their target. So our target mm-hmm. was $1,000, mm-hmm. and I think we were about... 1000 1000 <laughs> is that right? One, 200 200,000? Oh, you mean Wednesday, one, Wednesday breakfast? One, I think you meant the whole station. No, no, no. I <laughs> Sorry. Meant, I meant, I meant, uh, <laughs> I meant Wednesday breakfast. So I think we were about 900 from last time I saw us, or about 100 great. off. If you do feel like supporting Wednesday breakfast and you do go, oh, for goodness sakes, $100, get it over and done with, or even $5 and get us close to that target, everything's appreciated. And you can kind of text that in on 0488098855. I do promise I will stop mentioning this. <laughs> Um, but, yeah, we've still got the posters up, so it's still fresh in our brain at the moment. Absolutely. Yeah. But what have we all been up to over the last week? You've been... Where have um, you been? Like, yeah, so I've been starting uni again, so it's um, been kind of a... Getting back into that phase. Back into the groove. Because I'm, I'm, uh, I'm at RMIT, which means that I am, yeah, back last week. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think Deacon students are back earlier. Yes, yeah, we right? unfortunately got back a little earlier, so <laughs> <laughs> that mid-trimester break went too quick. Um, oh. Yeah, so I'm, you know, just working on assignments. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Normal uni. How about you, Rob? I I started uni this week as well. Hey. Hey. (laughs) Um, First class on Monday, first assignment due Thursday. Brilliant. So, yeah, it's good fun. Mm -hmm. Oh, just absolutely excellent stuff. That's what we live for. Yeah. Apart from that, um, there was something I did want to bring up. So, on Friday night last night... uh, this Gertrude Projection Festival was mm-hmm. launched. Mm-hmm. So, uh, for those who don't know, we're on Smith Street. Uh, one of our side streets is Gertrude Street, obviously linking up with Brunswick. And at the moment, they're throwing a nine-day-long projection festival, which starts basically when the sun goes down, six o'clock-ish, and goes till 12. And they're projecting, like, artists onto the side of buildings. Cool. It's sick. Yeah. Um, so if you have time this week, I think it's going on till the 3rd of August. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely get on down. Yeah. This is every uh, night or? This is every okay. night. Uh, just down Gertrude Street. And you basically walk up and down, get some good food, get, you know. Look some, at some art. Look at some art. Yeah. And um, just funk out in the funkiest, like, street of, in the city, I feel. Yeah, Great. definitely. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And you can, you know, walk past our building and go, hello. Mm. But we won't be there. On the topic of buildings, did anyone go to Open House Melbourne? I no. did. Oh, oh did. yes. Um, I can't remember the names of the places I went. I went to... No, I went to a, a synagogue mm-hmm. and a few terraces, mm-hmm. but we went really late, and I didn't realize in my head like how long <laughs> it would take me to get to one place to another. But yeah, um, yeah the heavy it lines. Was, yeah, yeah, it was amazing. Yeah. yeah, well, it's a great program. Like uh, for p- listeners who weren't aware, it's just they open up all these buildings that yeah. are generally sort of behind access, mm-hmm. and you can just mm-hmm. go in, have a tour, and see all these cool buildings or places that you often don't get to see. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a great, great idea, and it's been. I think it's like pretty much in most big cities across the world. Did so you get to go? I didn't get to go, unfortunately. I was in Sydney for the weekend, but I will next go next year, hopefully. Yeah, no, I have to say, I was I was planning to go, but we ended up in Brunswick. <laughs> it happens. <laughs> Open house in Brunswick. Right? <laughs> Anywho, um, with that, we're going to pop over to alternative news. Yes. So we'll play the beautiful Shirley Ellis um, theme and get on to that. We'll be back in a moment. Some folks know about it, some don't.
You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. Uh, apologies if you heard a squeaking noise. I am, this is my first time on the panel, so I'm still very much getting my, my groove. But jumping into some alternative news. So on Monday the 29th of July, i.e. two days ago, was Earth Overshoot Day. So for those who don't know, Earth Overshoot Day is essentially the date in which we exhaust all the resources that the Earth could produce in a single year. So say there's, you know, there's however many resources the Earth produces in 12 months, it's the date of the year in which we've used all of that up already. So basically this means that on the 29th of July, we've used 12 months of what the Earth can produce. And so basically now we're in debt for the next five months until the calendar year clocks over. But of course, that's not how the Earth actually works. Um, doesn't exactly appear fresh-faced on the 1st of January. So we're starting to carry quite a significant amount of debt over the years. So it's a reminder of how environmental issues are important, not just of climate change, but also like resource consumption as well. Um, and the other thing to point out is that the this year's Earth Overshoot is the earliest it's ever been. So every year it's getting earlier and earlier and earlier, which means that we're actually consuming more and more every year in an even more unsustainable manner. And so this model's been in use since about 1987, when the first Earth Overshoot Day was introduced, which was October 23, and so now we're, what was it, July 29, so it's gone a long way and not that long time. Um, but they estimate that around 1970 we're at uh, the Earth sustainable capacity. So yeah, it's sort of an interesting, interesting reminder about sort of resource consumption. But on that topic of resources, I don't know if you guys read about the deforestation in Brazil that started to ramp up again. Yes. Maybe. I think I did come across it. Yeah. So, um, so quite f- uh, on this topic of Earth overshoot. So the Amazon rainforests have been significantly reduced the protections of them um, ever since the election of a new far-right president um, at the start of this year. And this was following a period of when deforestation was at its lowest that it's ever been. So since the election, uh, I'm sorry, so the president during the election campaign in Brazil and the lead up to it was continually saying that Brazil's protected lands was a continual impediment to economic growth. That was his kind of whole rationale for why we need to start deforesting all of these. And so now since the election, there's been a 39% increase in deforestation in comparison to the same period in 2018. So it's a pretty huge Mm. jump all of Mm. a sudden. And there's really, when you read the articles, the, the president's been, of Brazil's been really pretty blunt in the face of international criticism, so much so he's, he's claimed that European leaders wanted a stronger um, conservation of the Amazon mm. so they can then develop it for themselves in the future. It's, 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 it's mm. really interesting. It is an um, interesting statement. And like, he's just like, he said some really crazy things, which I'm not going to say on radio, about other countries, which are just like, it's, it's worse than Trump in some ways. Um, and so, yeah, it, to me, it just kind of stands out as this kind of like classic example of sort of the myopic nature of humankind to only really consider short term economic boosts um, mm. rather than kind of the long term sort of economic swell you can we, like these amazing uh, environments have and also just like the intrinsic value of the Amazon as well. Mm. Um, but actually, as a small anecdote, so I was speaking with a friend from Rio de Janeiro and now saying in the lead up to this election, I don't know if people have been following the uh, the Brazilian pre- president, but he's mm. very far right. He's been pretty awful to a lot of minority groups. And so just like it's quite common in Australia to do a welcome to country um, before a presentation and at public events, it was really common for the presenter at the start of a, of a presentation just to say, not him, 
at the start of a of a presentation, referring that they don't support him, the soon-to-be president, and they wouldn't even mention his name because they don't respect him that much or mm. respect him at all. So that was just a really interesting thing that I learned. Um, but that's my alternative news. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, well, we've also got the papers in here this morning. So, Jess, do you, is there anything kind of headlining for you? We do. Uh, yeah, so in The Australian, um, we have data snooping free for all. And it uh, takes a look into the laws that were passed in November 2018, I think, and um, for Section 280 of the Telecommunications Act. And um, now, today, in the paper... Um, Australia's biggest telco, Telstra, has called for a crackdown to limit the access of information being sought by councils, small government agencies and other bodies that investigate minor legal breaches. So um, basically what's happening are companies, there are at least 22 agencies are named for having access to the information that we you know, don't really want them to have our hands on. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah so um, that's caused a bit of an... Uproar. It's it's interesting as well with these sorts of these stories because they're coming out like all the time yes, now. Yeah. Just moving into that post privacy sort of setting, like as we look as we all go into our futures, to what degree will we have privacy? Exactly. Yeah, like <laughs> we'll control over any of our data. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it just makes you think. Like you know, when the if the government's passed this one, um, the small companies can have their hands on it. You know, how easy is it for? Other people to anyone, just, you know, anyone to just have a look at uh, who you've been texting or, yeah, <laughs> you know, scary times. yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Anything else kind of popping out? Um, yes. So there's also second chief justice speaks up for voice. So the former High Court Chief Justice Robert Finch has laid out a way to enshrine an Indigenous voice to Parliament. Um, there's been talk about whether there should be a representation of, of Indigenous people in the Parliament, and it's just the Australian is discussing um, different politicians' views and whether that should be. And this is the federal. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yep. 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 Because yep. 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 the state um, government was interesting. They've been following their First Nations um, assembly which has just uh, gone through. So I think uh, elected representatives uh, or, or people are being elected. I think the elections were just being held recently. So it'll be wonderful to see what's going on there, though. Um, Will would remind us that they're still busy destroying mm-hmm. sacred trees. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's an ongoing thing. Um, and we might give a call out to that, call out to action a little bit later if you are interested in getting involved with that. Um, in the meantime, I realised I haven't actually given us the rundown of what we're doing oh, today. Right. Of course. <laughs> so I thought we might um, just give you that. We're starting off with a conversation from kind of last week from the Fair Go for Pensioners Conference, which happened on uh, Thursday, the 10th of July. Uh, so earlier this month. Mm-hmm. <laughs> As we, I'm just I'm losing track of the days. Anyway, uh, we'll be listening into Annie McLaughlin uh, talking about language and oppression. So that should be pretty fantastic. That was a special on Solidarity Breakfast, uh, as you know, fantastic breakfast show on Saturday. Uh, then we've got David Spratt coming on to come and talk about his recent report, uh, Three Degrees, which, it, not going to lie, it's it's an environmental story. It's a little bit depressing. It's discussing uh, the idea of three degrees warming and what effect that would have, and kind of trying to mobilise individuals mm-hmm. through through that scenario-based story, mm-hmm. as he describes it. So that should be interesting. And it's fitting for Earth Overshoot Day as well. Mm. It's extraordinarily yeah. fitting. Actually, then, you'll be very happy, Rob. I've yeah. kind of themed it. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it very deliberately planned. Um, and then at 8 o'clock, we have Boomerang Alliance mm-hmm. talking about how to run your events plastic-free. Yeah, so this is actually from Queensland. Uh, but Boomerang Alliance have paired up with a few other little uh, packaging initiatives up there, and they've come up with a rather 
concise little guide, but it's been quite effective. Okay. So we'll be discussing, you know, is it just common sense or is there, I think there's, I think it's a mix of, we have so many assumed practices when we're doing things like event management that there's a few like the, it, it's so much easier to do this alternative. Mm. <laughs> so that'll be that. And then finally we'll be discussing, uh, we'll be talking with Tilly. Uh, you guys might remember Tilly. She came on last week to discuss um, the protest happening up in facing Adani and kind of the arrest of four journalists uh, documenting that last week. Um, but Tilly's now back in Melbourne, so she's going to kind of be running us through what's happened in the last week and, yeah, giving her her side of the kind of like the climate story, why she's gone on this journey. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah, so we've got a very environmental show today, guys. That's what I love, absolutely <laughs> what I love. Um, but before then, I thought I might play some music. Ooh. So this is a little favourite artist of my Icelandic artist called Soli. Um, it's a little bit different, but I quite like it. It's called I'll Drown. He's alone in this house out there, far, far away. He sleeps with his eyes open. You're listening to 3CR. That was I'll Drown by Soli, which is a sort of new favourite artist of mine. So, who have we got next, Idwin and Jess? We have Annie McLaughlin talking about language and oppression from the Fairgrove for Pensioners Conference, which was held earlier this month. Great. Well, let's have a listen. So, I've got ten minutes to talk to you about language and oppression or the rise of doublespeak and its allies. And uh, everyone in this room has had double speak used against them. And how do I know that? I know that because you live in the electorate of Australia, in the valley of the Western civilization, in the shadow of the British Empire on planet Earth. Now, in the past, one of the most handy tools the British Empire, in the British Empire's kit of oppressive tools of economic enslavement, to the needs and the wants of a tiny island in the Atlantic and its even tinier collection of financial operators was to make the use of indigenous language illegal. This went to the heart of identity, self and communal expression, internal power structures and connection to the environment were at stake. The creation of them and us, those who spoke the local language were now dissenters and heretics the younger generation of the enslaved people wanted to get ahead and, in fact, lost their language. They were to be assimilated. It created confusion and defeat amongst the subjugated. Now, it could have been that the English overlords just wanted to... Everyone didn't want anybody to talk behind their backs, you know, like uh, uh, similar to uh, prisons where they like to keep everything in plain sight and keep prisoners under surveillance. But the consequences are still being felt while the economic hegemony of Western commercial interests are all around us, strutting around like a bantam victorious overall. And I bring this up to show how important language is. Language is the tool that humans use to describe themselves, the world around them, And the gutting of language or the removal of an Indigenous language removes meaning. 
The removal of this meaning affects humans' capacities to feel and understand and hope. Anyone here who has ever tried or succeeded in learning a second language will realise that it's not about uh, understanding a few signposts. It's a whole new landscape of meaning and concepts. The story of the economic and cultural bully, thief, the British Empire, also gives a clear example of the place of language in cementing power. Since we have only a short time on this subject of language and power, let's jump ahead to the early 20th century in the land of Mammon, business and the birth of managerialism. Time and motion studies and application of science in the oppression of the working class for the stated aim of making more profit, but eerily similar to the earlier rape and pillage empire phase, only more localised, more like a lemon juicer than an electric blender, but with the same disempowering project at its core and the enrichment of a very few and the control of the many, its aim. Now, this is not an anti-science ray. The Enlightenment, as it is called by those inspired language smiths of a past era who had a book of myth-making devices that are readily being picked through by modern marketers, the Enlightened project of scientific method and discovery is a communal human project, achievement. Like language, it belongs to everyone. It is a leverage tool. In fact... Uh, it is a rule, it, it, it applies to, it, its precepts helps us make easier, cheaper decisions. In fact, um, it's, it's not a rule of thumb, it's more precise. It isn't anti-human, it's a tool. In fact, if we go back to my reference to modern marketers, science is at the heart of one of the stories from the past that is so graphic in its telling, it remains one of the touchstones of Western civilization. ministry of wise words. You know the David and Goliath story, right? By putting managerialism, science and marketing in the same sentence, I'm signposting our way to the quagmire of oppressing governmental language, the language of power, destroying lives and busily fragmenting our cultural selves today. When the time and motion Taylorism of Frederick Winslow Taylor, it belonged to a person, he actually was a real person, and the fascistic Henry Ford was breaking work down into the assembly line, the magical aura of magic was used to market the new business model because coincidentally it was in, in the first phase of managerialism that mass media began to take shape. In the 1930s, Managerialism had a very specific ideological tone, and here's a quote, which is it's freaky. Managerialism combines management knowledge and ideology to establish itself systematically in organisations and society, while depriving owners, employees, civil society of all decision-making powers. When you hear it said or read in black and white, it's a bit like hearing Liberal politicians saying, as I heard Josh Frydenberg say, that their environmental policy is coal, coal and fracking and fracking and fracking. It takes your breath away. Don Watson, in 2002, in his book Death Sentence, The Decay of Public Language, 
points out, this, this is very important, that the language of managerialism is no longer confined to business. It's throughout every element of society, including all of our cultural institutions, libraries, universities, schools, government, busily normalising the idea that the only definition of success is adherence to a generic mission statement and KPIs, key performance indicators. It coincides, of course, with governmental retreat from the economy and private companies moving in to take over everything. Everywhere it is commitment to our service-enhancing process, key and core promises, strategic, prioritising outcomes, issues, empowering, the impact, productivity, inputs, scenarios and implementation, flexibility, moving forward, maximising synergies, investing social capital, downsizing. It has become the air people breathe, the formula of business jargon becomes their jobs, not the doing of their jobs. Let's look at the language around the contract of mutual obligation in the work for the Dole Scheme. Right? So, the use of a pseudo-legalistic term, a contract, that by its nature has at least two parties voluntarily involved, is a misuse of the term when one side has obligations and is being coerced. It is an example of wily marketing language. What do I mean by this? Marketing, as Don Watson helpfully points out, has very little to do with truth. What it is good at is first creating a context and then filling in scenarios that the public will accept or at least be too confused to object to. So in the case of mutual obligation for the doll recipients, it is cynically, deliberately building on the important philosophical idea of the social contract while successfully removing it. It is an ERTSAT legal contract or phony piece of jargon to cover a coercive government directive. How do I know this? When a person is forced on the work for the doll program, which should probably be called slave labour program, the person is not covered by existing laws of work, co work cover and OH&S. I don't know if you know that. They are non-people, non-citizens, defined by their lack of money as not deserving of being covered by the law of the land. This is exacerbated if you are an Aboriginal <coughs> living in a remote community where instead of 15 hours of free labour a week, <coughs> a person must give 25 hours of labour and if you refuse to use machinery without protective personal equipment, then you will be breached for eight weeks. You will get no money for eight weeks. Now, mutual sounds so friendly. Contract sounds so orderly and legal. And on inspection, the language is a ruse for tyranny. Which, of course, leads to the use of euphemism, doublespeak, from the Greek euthemia, word of good omen. Use of innocent word or expression in place of one that may be found offensive or suggest something unpleasant. They are used to avoid directly addressing subjects that might be deemed negative or embarrassing or to downplay the gravity of large-scale injustices, war crimes or other events that, worry a, that warrant a pattern of avoidance in official statements or documents. So when the American military in the West War on Iraq said things like they had de degraded 70% of the body of Iraqi soldiers, they were really saying they killed them. 
which is quite a bizarre concept. And makes it, it, I find that absolutely destroying, actually. When I was asked to do this talk, I started to collect some of the most obvious euphemisms or the use of language to misdirect. Here, the Australian government talks about offshore processing centres for refugees, but as Baruz Barani has said from Manus, there doesn't seem to be much processing going on, or during the Howard period that refugees had jumped a queue, a queue that never existed, or that they are illegals when they are not. Uh, there are ads that talk about fulfilment centre warehouses. I don't know what that is. Fulfilment centre warehouses and return maximising consumers. Prisons being called public reception centres and a slogan that read, the bank with clean money is the bank Australia needs. Then a specific bank logo, no explanation. Um, one is just supposed to jump to the conclusion that the two go together. No logic need apply. Now, we could go on with the bleaching, bleached, bleaching of meaning by the use of initialisms and the, and the one I have just come across, the serious misuse of the term. Now apprenticeships are being offered in traffic control and clerical assistance work, right? That's not what we think apprenticeships are, do we? No. And, of course, the most important is the population moving from serf to subject to citizen to customer or consumer. Today is called is a call to action. We're supposed to be thinking of ways of actually working towards positive change. So I thought that one of them would be to collect it, start collecting um, and creating a dictionary of euphemisms, suppressive terms and misdirections that have been used against you. I thought that would be a really handy tool in a way of uncovering what's actually going on and people should get cracking since gossip and insinuation are the methods by which the ideas are started and sustained in our society, then you should do it too. And then you shouldn't take it lying down, you should personally interrogate every message that you're actually looking at. And finally, a bit of advice from Don Watson, borrowed from Goethe, one ought every day at least to hear a little song, read a good poem, see a fine picture, and if it were possible, to speak a few reasonable words. Thank you. You are listening to... You are listening to 3CR, uh, and that was Annie McLaughlin talking about language and oppression from the Fair Go for Pensioners conference that uh, was held earlier this month. If you'd like to find out more, you can easily Google uh, Fair Go for Pensioners, uh, FGFP, Coalition Victoria Incorporated, uh, and their Facebook page has all the videos and kind of more linked information, so if you'd like to find out more. Absolutely. Um, but before jumping into our next interview, we're going to play a quick song it's by Skyhooks. It is Horror Movie. <laughs>
Most LGBTIQ people experience positive, intimate, and family relationships. However, like cisgendered heterosexual people, some LGBTIQ people experience abuse and violence in their relationships. With Respect is a new family violence service for LGBTIQ plus Victorians, providing counseling and recovery programs for victims and survivors of family violence and help for people using violence who want to stop. With Respect is a partnership between queer Space, Thorn Harbour Health, Switchboard Victoria and Transgender Victoria. For more information, visit withrespect.org.au or call 1-800-542-847. With Respect is not a crisis service. If you need immediate help, call 000. A 3CR supporter. Broadband return, playing the tote band room, Sunday, September 1st. Having completed an 11-city Japanese tour, they now launch their Japanese release album along with US split vinyl. Very special guests are Japanese label mates 20 Gilders, featuring Mitsuru Tabata of Acid Mother's Temple. Light Magnetic, the new band with members from The Scientist and Paradise Motel, plus competition team. Broadband, The Tote, Sunday, September 1st. Tickets, $10 pre-sale from thetotehotel.ozteaks.com.au. Kazu Muin Records is a 3CR supporter. It will be worth the effort to get to Darwin from the 2nd to the 4th of August for the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network's National Conference. Australia at the Crossroads, time for an independent foreign policy. Held under the ominous shadow of US-China contention and US-Australia military exercises for war on China, discussion and speakers will address the social and economic cost of militarism to Australia, the impact of militarism on the environment and the dangers posed to our peace and security by stationing US troops in Darwin. For more details, head to the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network's website at ipan.org.au. IPAN is a 3CR supporter. Good morning, and you're listening to 3CR. The time is 7.43. We just had a horror movie by the Skyhooks, which I think is always a timeless tune to remind us to panic about our state of affairs. And next up, we have an environmental story. So we've got David Spratt on air to discuss his recent report, The Third Degree, uh, co-written also by Ian Dunlop. Good morning, David. Good morning. Good morning. Now, we've been given a 12-years kind of deadline before this world suffers irrevocable climate change, um, which is a modest proposal by some people's standards. And, well, I don't, your report doesn't necessarily um, suggest any, any bright futures ahead either. Um, it discusses that the IPC report in 2018 provides provisions, uh, kind of all scenarios for a possible 1.5% to 2% increase in warming. Um, however, your report states that the scenarios are somewhat redundant as we're playing with kind of much more of a three-degree warning, warming kind of trajectory at the moment. Could you kind of break us down what was the premise of your paper? Well, I mean, if you look at the climate debate in the last three years, particularly internationally after the Paris Agreement in 2015, because the world's always talked about uh, keeping warming to no more than two degrees. And in 2015, the small island states, who you know, some of the most vulnerable nations in the world, managed to get the international policymakers to say, look, let's have a look at 1.5 degrees as well, because that will be less damaging to us, I think, which will be very damaging. Mm-hmm. So there's been a long debate 
uh, and reports and so on about 1.5 to 2 degrees and 1.5 is better than 2 and what would we have to do for one rather than the other. And that seems to be the whole focus of, of, of sort of discussion and it's a pretty much a theoretical discussion because nobody's acting in any way to get even near um, limiting temperatures to that uh, extent. And, and the reality, um, given the lack of commitment by nations, is that we're actually heading towards at the moment, if people don't do more, uh, at least three degrees and possibly four or more mm. when all the system feedbacks are in. And I and, and people we were working with just became very concerned that we actually weren't talking about where the planet is heading to. That was, that was our concern. Absolutely. And, uh, and, uh, you know, it's like there's a reality ahead of you that you're just looking out the side window and pretending the car's not going to crash, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. Because, because the sun's rising, it all looks beautiful. And uh, I think that's, that's the problem because, I mean, a discussion about three degrees should be so sobering for people that they mm. like, jump out of their chairs and never behave the same again. And uh, I think the, the second thing is that over a period of time, the... When people talk about climate change, they say, okay, here's the laws of physics and this means that the temperature will get hotter and there'll be more water vapor in the air so we can get stronger rains and, and there's more energy in the atmosphere so we can get stronger winds and bigger cyclones and then that sort of cycles down to, well, you know, there'll be less rain in southeastern Australia, which we're seeing now with the drought and we'll produce less wheat and, and you know, Maybe some people get sicker because there's going to be more heat stress and um, there'll be tropical uh, health vectors coming through the south. But what's really missing and I'm interested in is when those sort of impacts are turned into social and political consequences. Absolutely. And, that, okay. and I think that's the discussion we're not having enough of and that's what that paper was an attempt to sort of prod into a bit and think about those things a bit more. Yeah, well, the, the, the report very much explores um, this kind of climate crisis through scenario-based kind of, you know, what, what would this look like? Um, yep. And I, I suppose this idea of mobilising individuals through kind of almost the story of climate change, like, as you said, social political outcomes, what this is going to look like within our society. Do you, do you think, do you, I mean, obviously the report suggests that, or hopes that people will be motivated by this, but do you think people haven't been tuned into this story or, or that the story no. has been misreported? Well, I just don't think people understand uh, as well as they should the big picture. I mean, for example, um, I go out and talk to people a lot and I say, well, you know that the, the Arab Spring had climate change antecedents. The climate change played a significant mm. part in the development and existence of the Arab Spring and, and people sort of look puzzled. Uh, and, and so I don't think that... And, and the same can be said of Syria. The same can be said across the Sahel in in... You know what I mean? Darfur, Darfur, mm. Mali, Somalia. I mean, there are all climate change uh, fingerprints on on these uh, these events, and um, I don't think much time has been spent talking about them. I mean, for example, in in just before the Arab Spring, there were people may remember there were huge fires in Russia, uh, which devastated much of their wheat crop, and Putin and his mob decided to ban all exports. Six months, and, and, and Russia is a big wheat export. At the same time, there was a monsoon failure in China, and China basically stopped exporting wheat as well. And and nine of the ten biggest importers um, of wheat in the world in the Middle East and North Africa. And because of that, really an international uh, shortage of, of, of wheat, the spot price for wheat tripled. 
um, literally overnight, and uh, given you know, to a large extent by climate change. Um, so in in the Middle East on the ground, the, the price of bread tripled, and that was one of the you know pushing the, the, factors, the most significant driver of of, of, um, of um, the Arab Spring. And and I think when you read, read it at, at at that level and saying we can talk about Syria, you know, for now, um, you then see that this is not just about drought and rain and heat, but about societies and how they function and whether states will fail and, you know, that sort of thing. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's a more social rather than a physical understanding of climate change. And I suppose the report then emphasises those interconnections and the kind of the interreliance. And... Yes, and, and I think the, the, you know, the in, it, it, it's a complex matrix because you've got physical scientists, uh, uh, you know, and people are interested in food production and water and water uh, availability doing one level of work. And then you've got, you know, social scientists and, and, and um, people who look at the international order or the lack of international order and politics and how it works. And trying to mesh those two together has not been done very well. Mm. I mean... One of the, we, a couple of years ago, we brought out a, a woman from the United States called Sherry Goodman, who's one of the experts in climate change and national security. And the point she made over and over again about Syria, which clearly has a, a climate change fingerprint, she says, nobody saw it coming. Mm. And I think that's really important. Um, I mean, at that time, we wrote some scenarios and, and I sort of said somewhat speculatively that I thought that... Um, Climate change may have impact in, in um, the Philippines because uh, it's a very vulnerable country. Uh, it, it's poor. It's um, it's not a happy it's not a happy state. And there were people in the in the south who've um, really had a bad time. And uh, it's a food shortages and many other things that they, you know there might be trouble there. And there was a bit a bit late. It may not have been climate change, but you know we can see. Um, that there are some very vulnerable countries, even in our own region. What what happens to the north of Australia um, when we lose our coral reefs? Because there are three or four hundred million people in our region who are primarily dependent on coral systems uh, for their livelihood, either for food or tourism and so on. And um, I don't think we're having those conversations at all. I mean, certainly the government seems completely clueless uh, on these things. Absolutely, and the report kind of steps out what will happen in 2020, 2030, and kind of beyond to 2050. Um, was there anything that you kind of found that surprised you while writing the report or that you really wanted to emphasise? Look, I, I think, I mean, we can get very fancy about this, but in the end, um, people and their capacity to, to, to live on land and to, to survive, it's about food and water. You know, that's, that's where this all starts. And uh, what's really shocking in a way is that the what are going to be the two most, two of the most water-challenged countries in the world are China and India, mm-hmm. um, where their potable water per capita um, is, is really low and declining. In India, I mean, we've recently seen a story of a of a large city there where it's you run out of water, uh, that they've been over-tapping um, um, their, their water reserves, the water table is dropping really quickly. Uh, and, you know, it, it's at that level. The same, the same is true of China. What happens when um, the snow melt, uh, the, the ice cover on the Himalayas decreases enough that the actual uh, melt water each year running down the Ganges and the Mekong and uh, um, the Yellow River and um, the rivers throughout Southeast Asia, um, that water flow is in there. There will be terrible consequences for, for, for Asia in terms of water security in those mm. really high population countries. And 
Well, that's sort of a shocking story that the, the more you read, you go, okay, this is this is truly going to be devastating. And until, you know, while the report talks about high-level social and political consequences, mm. those consequences start with basic things basic like needs. Food, and, food, and, food and water. Yeah. The basics. Um, so, yeah, according to the, the, the report, as, as you've just mentioned, uh, the poorest nations will suffer first, but more so um, international consequences of climate change do begin with the wealthiest and strongest societies. That's written from yeah. the IPP. Uh, that's reference from the well, IPCC. Ab- absolutely. I mean, we, we know, for example, that 50% of the world's emissions are created by... Uh, uh, um, that 10% of the world's population mm. is responsible for 50% of the emissions. So if that reaches 10%, and that's a lot of us in Australia as well, um, um, cut our emissions to just the European, av- the European Union average, which is not, you know, exactly bottom of the barrel, mm. then the world's emissions will be down by one third. So if 10% of the world cut their emissions to the EU average, we'd cut a third of global emissions. And... Uh, that's pretty compelling. Absolutely. I guess my, my final kind of concluding question is the, the, the wealthiest, as you said, the 10%ers uh, need to address climate change first. Um, how do you think this is going to play a part? I mean, you've just released a climate change report into a political climate right now where environmental reforms are conservative at best and kind of the words climate change are deeply taboo. Are yep. you hoping that, as you said, the police don't really have an understanding of the climate crisis. Are you hoping this educates or they, they buy into the story? Yes, I mean, I think that what we've seen around the world, um, I mean, Australia is sort of, you know, in the Saudi Arabia category now when it comes to climate change, isn't it? I mean, mm. we're, we're heading towards being the world's greatest exporter of, of gas and uh, we're pretty much close to it for coal as well. So we might all thumb our noses at Saudi Arabia and the Gulf because of the oil, but we're just as bad. Mm. Um, look, I, I think the really good news is that the climate conversation has changed in the last couple of years. If you look at... Um, um, the work by Greta Thunberg and the and the, the student strikers. You look at, at the sort of language and what they're talking about, the Extinction Rebellion. You look at the Uninhabitable Earth by David Wallace Wells, a book that's really sold a lot. I think there's a new realism in the climate conversation. I think we've got, we, you know, we're now really starting to talk at the problem as it exists. And you know, we start to see some leaders there more at the international level rather than people who actually run countries. But, I mean, Pope Francis, even even the UN Secretary-General um, has come out a couple of times. He really seems to get it and he's saying, this is a climate emergency, this is existential risk. Mm. The head of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, which is the international climate policy-making body for the UN, she's come out and used that sort of language. So, you know, I really think the penny's dropping and... Uh, the conversation's changing a bit. The conversation's changing. And if you can actually name the problem, um, which we haven't been able to very well up to now, if you can name the problem, then you're probably um, one step closer to the, the solutions that are needed at a global scale. Absolutely. Now, we're going to have to say goodbye to you for today, but um, you'll be coming on to talk to below, Beyond Zero Emissions, is that correct? On Friday, yes, I believe so. Wonderful. Well, people can tune on, tune into that conversation if they're interested. And also, um, I believe that your paper is available at the website Breakthrough Online. Breakthroughonline.org.au and up the top there's a little tab that says publications and it's under papers. So breakthroughonline.org.au forward slash papers. Yep, and that's written by yourself, David Spratt, and also Ian Dunlop, is that correct? That's right. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for the time. No problem.
Great. Well, we have another interview with Boomerang Alliance about plastic v plastic free events. But before then, we're just going to play another song. This is called Cycling Trivialities by Jose Gonzalez. And you're listening to 3CR. We've just hit 8 o'clock. So next up we're talking to Toby from the Boomerang Alliance, an organisation who, in conjunction with the Queensland Government and Australian Packaging Convent Organisation, have created a plastic-free council event guide intended to assist council organisers to kind of adopt policies and phase out single-use plastic from events. So we've got Toby on the line this morning. Good morning, Toby. Good morning. Good morning. So this kind of... um, event guide comes out of a range of, uh, as you call it, practical experiences. Um, what is kind of the purpose of formalising all of these ideas into a document? Isn't it a lot of uh, just common sense? Why, why, why make it so accessible? Um, I think you're very right. It is common sense. I mean, <laughs> I think the reality is that um, 
it's not happening enough mm. in terms of events being able to change and apply things. So often you need to, to put it down on paper and have a manual or provide things electronically so that people, uh, event managers or whoever's organizing things can actually follow script as to what they could do to reduce their plastic. So the sad fact is, of course, is that around about 95% of all plastic packaging in the world mm -hmm. is used once and then thrown away into landfill or as litter. And obviously, the, one of the main problems is you go to a public event or a market, quite often you'll, you'll, you'll be given your coffee cup in a polystyrene cup or your, your food in, the, in, in a polystyrene clamshell or whatever, and all of that goes to waste. Mm. Similarly, you know, a, a progressive market might even give you stuff in a compostable coffee cup or mm. a compostable um, palm frond bowl, for instance. And then you find that having consumed your food or your drink, you have, there's only one bin, and it's going to go to landfill. Oh, uh, okay, yeah. So, so this this is this is really a guide, and <clears throat> and it is for councils, but it's for all all people who want to run an event. It's an advice on how you can actually do it, because what we we really want to get to is for you go to an event, you're given <clears throat> either a reusable cup or plate, mm -hmm. or if that's not available, you get a compostable one. And then there's adequate, you know, collection facilities to make sure that what, um, when you discard things, it goes into a compost bin and it goes to a composter rather than to landfill. Absolutely. And uh, through, through the process of making this, I, I mentioned common sense. Uh, it's really interesting when I, when I was reading through it because I was going, oh, yeah, that, that's a great idea. And, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. There's a whole lot of... Um, practices that we've just kind of assumed into event management that are extraordinarily unsustainable. Was it kind of while you were going about making this event kind of council guide, was it was it kind of um, having to break down a lot of pre-existing kind of practices and start from the start again, or was it a lot of reforming within the system, you know, kind of providing alternatives rather than... I like your theme about common sense because that's what I think it, it is. So, so the, 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 the key elements that we, we've broken down and, and tried to change mm -hmm. is the first thing is that you've actually got to say to a vendor at a market or a, at an event, we want you to only supply this sort of foodware. Foodware is, a, is, 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 you know, cups and plates and, and crockery and whatever. So, because currently what happens is the vendor decides whatever they're going to provide. So that's an important part of it. The other part of it is when you, you go to collect um, whatever your, you know, the discarded products, people nowadays are a bit confused. What's compostable? What's recyclable? What goes into the waste bin? Mm -hmm. So we've had to re, almost reconstruct all of that to make sure that people actually start to understand that increasingly what we want to now happen is, you know, you've, you've got stuff that goes into a recycling bin, and ideally, at all events, everything else should go into a compost bin. So that's how we're trying to re reimagine, shall, shall we say, re in a common sense way, mm. how to do things differently. That sounds awesome. I'm a big supporter of compost here. Um, and this this council event guide sounds like it's it's translatable across, as you said, councils to events and cafes. Um, what's the kind of been success rate of people picking this up in your area? Okay, 
so so this is happening all over the place. So, mm-hmm. so this is intended as as a guide to just help people around the basic steps and give them some ideas. So we work in Noosa in Queensland, where we've got a, a whole community of um, program happening for cafes and for events. So to give an example, um, we work with a, a big event called the Noosa Food and Wine Festival. Mm-hmm. That's about 10,000 people over a weekend in Noosa. And we've, we've applied all these rules to that event. And it meant that this year in May, all the, the, the takeaway food and, um, and all the takeaway foodware actually was collected and went to a commercial composter and none of it went to a landfill. And last year, all of it virtually went to the landfill. Wow. So that's quite a significant change from, uh, as, as the pay, as the council event kind of guide suggests, moving away from allowing that rubbish to end up in drainways and sea and, as you said, uh, yeah. tips. And said kind of in councils. Um, the, interestingly enough, another aspect I really found kind of cool within the report is that it, um, included practical tools for councils, such as the generic plastic free motion, almost kind of like an IKEA flat pack, <laughs> uh, for local right. councils. Um, this is, this is providing, uh, quite a range of resources. It's not just providing kind of, as we said, kind of common tips, but more so even like motions. What was kind of your reason Absolutely. for this? Yes, because I think local government's got a big role here in in actually leading um, the agenda. And so it would be great to have all local councils adopting, you know, plastic-free policies for both their events and all their operations because the community can take a lead from them. So the idea of that, that generic motion, for instance, was... Well, we've written it for you. You can simply adapt it and see if your council... Again, that idea of again that idea of writing it down on paper, almost absolutely Just making or, it a thing, well, or electronically, it doesn't have to be on paper. Absolutely, uh, yeah. So I guess another part of my question is um, there's been a lot of critique around some biodegradable materials and that idea of, you know, they break down to thousands smaller pieces of plastic. I suppose through this kind of emphasis on compost, you're kind of avoiding that kind of yeah, materials that say they break down, but they don't really break down with that. Yes, exactly. So, so what we insist upon is the product you choose is 100% compostable okay. to the Australian standard. And is that and accessible? Oh yes, oh yes, yes. So, so the, most of these products are all available and accessible and reasonably price comparable. They're slightly more expensive than the the non uh, compostable versions, mm-hmm. but they're they're perfectly affordable and available, and increasingly so. So what, what we have at a more general government level and globally is a real move to have all plastic packaging either reused, mm. composted or recycled. One of those three, not thrown away into the landfill. So this is all, must be all part of this whole agenda so that if you go to an event, I, ideally you're going to get a reusable plate and a reusable cup and knife and fork. Mm-hmm. That would be the ideal. But if you're not, at the very least, that that product must must be compostable and go to a composter. So that's really the trend we're, we're trying to encourage by this. And uh, commercial composters, are they actually, as well, are they also accessible? Because I know, I mean, we usually hear about the tip, we hear about recycling firms, but I've never really heard of a compost spot near us. Are they, are they kind of 
in hiding, or have we not heard about them? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's a growing, emerging industry. Okay, right, so it's so, one to support. So instance, if you go to South Australia, and South Australia tends to be, you know, the best state in terms of many of these issues, you'll mm-hmm. find that the commercial compost is situated in Adelaide, and it's a lot easier. So, so what's happening is we're creating a market, and we want the composters to come into that market because really what we're trying to do is shift away from landfill so that we're actually reusing or composting material instead of putting it in a hole in the ground. Absolutely. And as you mentioned, this is in line with Australia's 2025 national packaging targets, uh, which work towards 100% of Australia's packaging to be reusable, recyclable, or compostable by 2025, which is very ambitious. Uh, 70% of Australia's plastic packaging to be recycled or composted by 2025, and problematic or unnecessary single-use plastic to be phased out through design. This very much, this this guide sounds like the Boomerang Alliance's contribution to those targets. Um, Obviously, we're not anywhere near on track to fulfilling those. Um, do you think this could be kind of a shift in the narrative? We hope it's a contributing one. Mm. The, the, the main thing politically that has to happen is we need all the jurisdictions, the Commonwealth and all the states to actually set the agenda. Mm. So, so in reality, what our ask is, okay, in the National Waste Plan, you need to set this as a target. And you, they, they talk about reusable compostable and recyclable we say no the target should be reused mm. composted or recycled because in reality everything is you know reusable Absolutely. Um, so so we want them to set that target because if they set that target for say 2025 or sooner mm-hmm. it sets the whole agenda for everything else it means that business it means consumers it means anyone who uses these products has got to change their practices and all the alternatives are available so everyone can. Fantastic. And so I suppose the key idea that I've taken away from this is if I was to plan an event tomorrow, uh, it'd be 100% compost <laughs> kind of uh, providing. Would there be anything you'd say if, if someone was organising an event tomorrow and they hadn't thought at all about any of these things, what, what would you say is the number one priority for them to get onto? Okay. If, if it's tomorrow, mm-hmm. I'd be letting people who attend... Um, to, to be aware of, you know, the products that they're, they're being provided with, you know, mm. put it in the right bin to right. start with. If you've got a bit more time, mm-hmm. I'd, be, I'd be saying to them, organize with your vendors to either provide reusable or 100% compostable foodware as a starting point, and then see if you can organize the collection so that you don't send stuff to waste and landfill and you send it to the composter instead fantastic well thank you so much for joining us this morning toby um now you're, the you're welcome. council guide is available at the boomerang alliances website which is just uh, boomerangalliance.org.au and individuals can get on that to find out kind of well com- composters near them and kind of those sorts of more recyclable absolutely. facilities absolutely yes and there's, there's also an, another sub-website called Plastic Free Places. If people forget Boomerang Alliance, plasticfreeplaces.org.au. And that's our, our website where we've got all our information about all our plastic-free places and what we're doing. Fantastic. Okay, well, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us today. Oh, you're welcome. Wonderful. Okay. Thank you. So we have one more interview for today, but before that, we're just going to play another song. This is called Down to the Sound by BBO. Thank you. 
garden noises penetrate the slumber without child neither of us it's like there's a halo or a ring of fire Darwin from the 2nd to the 4th of August for the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network's National Conference. Australia at the Crossroads, time for an independent foreign policy. Held under the ominous shadow of US-China contention and US-Australia military exercises for war on China, discussion and speakers will address the social and economic cost of militarism to Australia, the impact of militarism on the environment and the dangers posed to our peace and security by stationing US troops in Darwin. For more details, head to the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network's website at ipan.org.au. IPAN is a 3CR supporter. This is our country. We've never forgotten where we've come from. Or who we are. We keep our culture strong. Now it's time to come together. Talk as equals. And write our own future. This is our country. And this is our time. Treaty. It's time. And roll now for the First People's Assembly of Victoria election. Authorised by the Victorian Treaty Advancement Commission, Melbourne. Did you know volunteering contributes to a happier life? Want to know what you can do to make a difference in your local community of Whittlesea? Whittlesea Community Connections hold a volunteer information session every month. It is a friendly session where you get to meet others and be linked to not-for-profit organisations. Contact Michelle from Whittlesea Community Connections on 94016630 or visit our website www.whittlesecc.org.au to find out more. A 3CR supporter.
not too late to the old It's not too late to the old It's not too late to donate to 3CR Radiothon 9419 or check our website 3cr.org.au. Three CR's got the coolest things, don't they? They really do. They really do. Um, so just to uh, kind of kind of jog your memory, we've just been having a conversation with Toby from Boomerang Alliance just about um, their council f- council guide about plastic-free events, which mm. is pretty funky. And before that, we had David Spratt on the line uh, talking about his co-authored report, Three Degrees, which is talking about scenarios for the three degrees warming. Um, we've got another kind of environmental moment coming up. We've actually got Tilly on the line, but before we get her on, um, I just wanted to kind of reference last week. So last week, four journalists were arrested for filming a protest up in Queensland. Uh, the protest was around Adani. Since then, the police have withdrawn uh, the trespass charges that were laid against the journalists at the time after reviewing the circumstances of the arrest, i.e. journalists mm-hmm. doing their job. <laughs> However, the whole kind of whole scenario has set a really dangerous precedent in my mind for freedom of press, especially as it stands alongside the recent attacks of freedom of expression and introduced protest laws that Australia has been able to see. And, and it's really starting to put under question whether Australia can actually has the ability to express concern or critique against the government. This all seems to be under attack. Um, Rob, just, I just wanted, before we get into the interview, just wanted to kind of get your opinions. What's your thoughts? Because I've been following this kind of horrified mm. going, oh, goodness. Yeah. I don't know. To me, it just seems like it's pretty expected, to be honest. Like, I think we've just been going down the path where, you know, the government keeps, you know, uh, introducing these initiatives to, you know, block our freedom of press, you know, Mm. for journalists and media consumers ourselves, you know, like it's... It's scary times, but I just think change needs to... You know. So this wasn't too much of a surprise for you? I think so, no, not to me. Ooh, okay. <laughs> it definitely was for a French journalist. He, he came out and said, um, I've never been arrested in a democratic <laughs> country before. <laughs> yeah, that, people, yeah, I, that happens a lot, though, I think. I think journalists come over from, you know, overseas to Australia, and they're like, oh, oh, well, <laughs> this is how you guys run your... Whistleblowers you know, from facing court. Yeah, okay. yeah, so... Mm-hmm. <laughs> And the thing that I find scary is you're saying like you're, what you're sort of you're sort of expecting it. Yeah. That's kind of so been starting to be so ingrained mm-hmm. into an understanding of how media and journalism should operate in yes. Australia, and I find that quite scary that that's becoming so sort of non-questioned. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, I think the fact that it was kind of like um the arrest happened and then it was like oh sorry the yeah the arrest happened and then there was kind of that review and it was like oh no it's all right it was it was the, mm. the presses were released oh the charges were released it's kind of like uh it, it's a scary it, it's scary that it happened in the first place yeah. and i don't think that dimin- the fact that they were released and kind of was reviewed doesn't diminish the fear of them being arrested in the first no, place Anywho, with those concluding thoughts, we've got Tilly on the line. Now, Tilly was one of the protesters from last week's demonstration, and she's on to kind of give us a bit more information about her time up there. Um, good morning, Tilly. Good morning, Edwin. Thanks for having me. No problem. So you're now back in Melbourne. Um, could you kind of give us a run-through of what your, what, what's your past week been like? Okay, so the past week I've actually just been taking my time in getting back down to Melbourne. Part of my bail conditions is to live in Victoria um, uh-huh. rather than in uh, Bowen, which is the place where the camp resided. Um, so, yeah, I'm back in Vic, trying, <laughs> to, trying to stick to my bowel condition. Absolutely. Um, and 
within uh, when you actually originally went up to kind of frontline action around uh, Adani, I remember you mentioning to us that it was kind of like it was your own personal journey kind of going up there. You'd reached a threshold where you're like, we must act. And that you were kind of like, I personally feel like I am involved and need to be involved in this. Um, what was your experience with that kind of journey that you went on? Yeah, well, um, yeah, the journey up there, like the journey with the people that were there, and it was, it was, it was a phenomenal place to be, really, for for myself, for like my learning curve in my protests and my activism um, on a day to day life. Like, I just feel like the people that are up there are really on the ground actually making a difference every day. And like, um, yeah, as you say, as you said earlier about the French journalists and like having the media, like cracking down the media and having the government in this sort of oppressive state that we feel that we're in now, mm-hmm. like it's, it's so hard to get change through the normal like roots of change. I feel that, um, I feel that the government is so sided towards big industries and big, like these mining companies just have such a sway over the way that the government works, and then as a result of that, over the way the police works. In as we saw with the um, with the journalists, and I just feel that the normal roots of protest and activism haven't been working, and the climate is in crisis. And I think it's time to start acting in in rebellious and other other ways because that seems to be the only way that's getting things through. <laughs> Absolutely, and up uh, up there, as you said, in the country, you do see the significance and beauty of the place that you're in. Do you think that lends to huge inspiration? Yeah, for sure. I mean, like, you're you're driving past these gorgeous, like, beautiful country that's just so, like, the intact country is gorgeous, and and then you drive past the coal mine, and it's like the whole thing is ripped up, and there's, like, these, you can't even imagine it, these huge mines, like, like piles of coal and like mm. massive amounts of machinery that is just like trudging through the earth and it just looks so uh, it looks bizarre to be honest but it also just is such a visually like impactful like and resonating image of what we are doing to the earth like yeah it's very it's very powerful and and scary for sure absolutely so the abc this week released kind of um a little profile around people who were kind of involved within the anti-Adani movement saying, hey, look, these are people. And it very much has been the media framing up until now that the only people who get involved with the, with the climate change crisis and who are engaged in the activism around it are kind of, you know, bleed out your heart out, hippies who are kind yeah. of, as you said, there's a lot of stigmas and a lot of stereotypes. Um, who are the people that you met there? What was the diversity of people? Yeah, the diversity is crazy. I think that's something that really struck me when I was up there. Um, you know, you had you had teachers and doctors and lawyers had like really young people and like older people too and then you had you had like your you know you had your local people and your interstate people so there were people from um Bowen which is the town that was like closest even though most people in Bowen are very pro the mine um but there were people from Bowen that came to the camp as well so it's great to see a mix of local and interstate and there was also like we had People that were previously coal miners. So, you know, you had every single person from every walk of life there who just decided that enough was enough and that it's time to start acting on on something that's going to affect all of our futures, no matter who you are. Absolutely. And, um, oh, bother them. My last question has just escaped me. Um, one moment. <laughs> 
I was thinking just with the, you mentioned uh, Bowen of quite a few people being quite anti-Adani. Oh, anti-act, uh, sorry, anti-anti-Adani, I should say. Um, yeah. Did you, within your kind of protesting activism, did you try and get into the local community and kind of talk through attitudes or was the community very against any sort of interaction or engagement? Well, actually, it's a very interesting question. So we um, we had a community engagement team, which I was part of, and sort of our role was to go out into the community and um, make connections and, and show the community that we were just, like, just people just like them with something that we believe in sort of thing. Um, not to, you know, try and sway anyone's mind because Bowen is such a stronghold for Adani. Um, mm. as, yeah, as you were talking about being, like, an oppressive police state like adani has adani has poured so much money into bowen like it's the the whole community has really like really been the brunt of their sort of you know attempt to change people's minds in australia and like a lot of them a lot of people have like fair enough views about like their jobs and i think that that that's not something that we're fighting against and i think that a lot of them are in in old coal jobs which we're not fighting against we're fighting against new coal and more coal in this in this climate crisis. So, um, yeah, it was really important for us to go out into the community and talk to people. That we had a lot of we had a lot of backlash. I mean, you don't go around Bowen wearing a Stop Adani T-shirt. You, like that's not a safe thing to do. But there, like, there were a lot of people that were really reciprocal and like having a good chat about it and just seeing where we're at and like just seeing that each of us were like people and yeah as you said like this diverse amount of people were not just like these crazy hippies that have been brainwashed or um but also on the other hand we met this amazing group of people that are part of stop odani bowen and they they have been locals that have been on the ground since like you know since forever like their whole their whole lives there's locals there and they've been fighting environmental issues in, in like the hardest circumstances and I'm I'm they're forever gonna be my idols because like for us in Melbourne it's so easy to be protesters because we're within a bubble of people that, that agree with what we have to say, but for them literally like going to the local to fight every day. Difficult thing in the morning. Yeah. So. Absolutely. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Tilly, for coming on. I'm going to have to kick you off unfortunately. We've only got two no minutes worries. to go. But thank you. It, it's fascinating to hear that community aspect. Yeah, yeah. It's a great community. I would highly recommend getting up there if you get a chance. Absolutely. Sounds like you might either. <laughs> Sounds like I might. All right. Talk to you soon, Tilly. So, just a quick rundown. I just want to remind us what we've had. We've um, listened to a conversation with Annie McLaughlin about language and oppression today from the Fair Go for Pensioners conference. We've also had David Spratt talking about his report, Three Degree. And we've had Boomerang Alliance coming on to talk about um, their plastic-free council guide that they've come up with. We've had a lot of environmental stuff today. I'm loving the environmental themes. themes. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. So, um, guys, we finish off the show usually uh, with something that we're grateful for. Uh, Rob, would you like to take us away with what you're grateful for this week? I'm grateful for socks and gloves because I learned if you sleep with socks and gloves it gives a better sleep and I've been trying it the last few days and I don't know if it's a placebo or it actually works but mm. it seems to work so nice nice grateful for socks and gloves <laughs> how about you Jess oh, mine's sort of a similar sort of one but no I, I'm very grateful for big winter coats that you get from op shops because I'm wearing one today and um, I'm really really grateful for it <laughs> really, really. Yeah. Needs it. Um, Absolutely. I suppose um, I'm grateful for internet recipes. Mm -hmm. Um, I bought a, I found an internet recipe for chocolate biscuits this week with dried fruit and chocolate chips in it, so really extravagant. 
And not going to lie, it was probably the best decision I've ever made. <laughs> so I think I'm grateful for that. Anyway, that's kind of been our show. Um, yeah, I hope you have a wonderful Wednesday, guys. Absolutely. Yeah. And so up next we have Stick Together. Stick Together. But Woo-hoo. we'll see you same time next week. It's not too late to donate. It's not too late to donate. It's not too late to donate to 3CR Radiothon 94198377 or check our website 3cr.org.au. Three CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall. You can check them out at nibs.org.au. And if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a three CR supporter, contact the station on zero three nine four one nine eight three double seven.